welcome to the Lover's Hole. You're with Mike and Ian. And we are rereading the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. We're up to chapter nine in Reverse of the Metal. Ian, can you bring us up to date with what happened in chapter eight and what we have to look forward to this week? I certainly can, Mike. Last week, we got into a pretty dark place. After seeking advice from Joseph Blaine, Stephen had taken Tom Pullings and bought the surprise out of the service at auction. Blaine had been talking to Stephen about him unofficially promoting independence for Chile and Peru. Jack's lawyer, Mr. Lawrence, had caught the Spanish flu. Stephen, having hurried back to the trial to testify, discovered that it was all over. And the dark place was that we discover it went against Jack. He's been found guilty. We wound up that chapter wondering what the sentence was going to be. And so this week, this all unfolds for us. Stephen works to see if there are ways of setting aside or lessening Jack's sentence. He brings to Jack news of his plan for fitting out the surprise as a letter of Mark. So Joseph Blaine counsels Stephen this week on Jack's sentence and advances what the next potential mission might be. Meanwhile, Mike, we get an appearance from Ray. And finally, in what is easily one of the canon's most emotional scenes, Jack is sentenced and punished. O'Brien's giving us probably one of his shortest chapters. He's filling it with Easter eggs, but also giving us one of those big emotional highlights. And Mike, it's funny, we know that we're in for this big, important chapter, but this is O'Brien and the setup for it at the beginning of the chapter is low key. We're not given lots of pregnant anticipation. We're straight into this quite intimate scene, aren't we? We really are. And you know, you you kind of think, given where this is going, there'd be this grand opening leading all up to it, bringing us in. But no, no, what we've got is it's early morning, it's raining. Sophie sees Stephen waiting outside the gates of the marshal, see Jack's prison open. And she's worried that he's getting all wet. You know, typical Stephen in the rain, no hat. She walks over, shares her umbrella, and Stephen says, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I, I really wanted to catch you before you saw Jack. So Sophie kind of drags him in, sits him down, drying out his jacket before they go kind of into the depths of the prison, the naval prison itself, and, and she gets him something to eat. And Stephen tries to bring Sophie up to date on he's been all this running around. He's been doing an attempt to maybe see if he can launch an appeal or somehow get Jack's sentence lessened. And and it's it's not really good news. The appeal is impossible. Uh, One man had told Stephen that Jack is likely not to go to prison. However, others that Stephen talked to said that they could not alter the course of justice. And and I love this. O'Brien writes, you know, justice be damned, said Sophie in the very tone of her cousin, Diana. So we, we get a hearken moment back to Diana, but this little scene outside the prison in the rain, no, definitely not pregnant with anticipation. No, I, I love this line from Sophie, like you say, um, and that reference to Diana just has all kinds of resonances for Jack and Stephen, of course. Right. So they've been talking about the, the legal side of an appeal to overturn the verdict and perhaps even the sentence. Um, Stephen's also concerned about the professional consequences for Jack. He's concerned that maybe we might be able to find a way to get Jack's name to be not struck off the Navy list. It turns out that only the king, or in present circumstances, the regent, can stop that. And we get this further insight into just how connected Stephen is 
to the world of royalty. Since the regent is in Scotland, Stephen goes to Brighton to see the regent's wife, Mrs. Fitzherbert. And we'll dig a little bit in a moment into who Mrs. Fitzherbert is, but this is basically the regent's mistress. Stephen asked whether they had in some way been officially married since Mrs. Fitzherbert is a Roman Catholic. And Stephen says, well, he's seen a letter from the Pope validating the marriage. However, Mrs. Fitzherbert tells Stephen that she herself no longer has any influence with the regent and suggested that he talk with Lady Hartford. And Mike, this is a new angle on Stephen Maturin. He's on speaking terms with members of the regent's household and he's seen documents from the Pope. Right. He's, he's, he's got some pull in this town. He, he really has come a long way. I mean, we knew that, you know, he's got this relationship with the brother of the regent who he had treated successfully in the past, you know, who's a Navy man. But yeah. who, who himself is a future king as well, by the way. Well, that's right. Well put. That's right. And, and you know, we get this, you know, just like O'Brien, he just kind of throws in a couple of names here, not big to the plot, but a great Easter egg, if you will that we have this Mrs. Fitzherbert, who had been twice married before and then was secretly married to the regent back when he was just George the Prince of Wales, you know, yeah. before becoming George IV and before becoming the regent. But, and I guess he had probably, he may actually, now that I think about it, have transitioned into the regency because his marriage was considered invalid under English law because his father, George III, had not given it consent. Now, whether that was George III was on the throne and incompetent or whether they had kind of hidden it from him, and it may well have been hidden because had he gotten George III's consent, another English law would have then taken him out of the line of succession because indeed Mrs. Fitzherbert was Catholic. And at that time, you know, there could not be a, a, you know, a king, a queen, a prince, a princess who was Catholic there. Yeah. So there's this fascinating tale between Mrs. Fitzherbert and George the Regent that has this incredible history of on again, off again, on again, off again, yeah. which I highly recommend people take a look at. And I would point out that Lady Hertford, who comes up by name here, was in fact the then current mistress exactly. of the regent. <laughs> right. So and it just kills me how like everybody knows this. Everybody knows there's Mrs. Fitzherbert. Uh, she knows that there is the Lady Hertford. And then, you know, you try to do a little research on this and Lady Hertford pops up all over the place because there was, you know, this is this title that lives on through generations. There was one in, in Tudordom, Anne Seymour, a bride of yeah, Henry VIII, yeah. in uh, Elizabethan times, Catherine Gray. And so now, yeah. now we've got this Lady Hertford, who is Isabella Anna Seymour-Conway, the Marchioness of Hertford. Uh, and was, as I say, indeed a mistress and was the one credited with making him more of a Tory sympathizer. So changed his politics and credited with turning him against Catholic emancipation. Wow. So, uh, you know, we've got all kinds of things sort of running here. And here's Stephen, you know, our good Catholic finding this out. Jack, who was just found guilty by these people who are against Catholic emancipation and Jack with the Catholic uh, natural son. So, you know, fascinating. So people who enjoy shows like The Tudors and Versailles and all these kinds of, you know, royalty and times and these yeah. plots and machinations. There's some great scenes here for the next Aubrey Matron series, which, by the way, Netflix and Amazon and HBO are still waiting yeah, to be made. Still um, waiting to be made. That's right. And, 
And and by the way, this all gets to play out again in about 110 years' time in 1938 when uh, Edward VIII oh. wants to marry Wallace Simpson and they have to abdicate. But there that's another go. another Hollywood movie that we uh, that we all know. And she has the discredit not of being Catholic, but being American. And boy, exactly. that was really digging low. Uh, being a divorcee, particularly. Oh, exactly. <laughs> but I already said that when I said she was American. <laughs> so it it's fascinating that we hear all these connections that Stephen has. It's heartbreaking, but not surprising that he can't convert any of this into the real likelihood of uh, softening or overturning the verdict for Jack. So the conversation turns back to this acquisition that Stephen's made. He talks to Sophie about how he's bought the surprise to be a private man of war. Um, Tom Pullings is out there at Shelmerston with the ship with plenty of prime seamen. Remember, he had to basically warp the ship off the dock right away to stop her copper and all of her rigging and all of her bits and pieces being taken away. Tom's gone to Shelmerston. Shelmerston is this fictitious little cove somewhere in the West Country. It might be based on Appledore. It might be based on a couple of other places, either in Somerset or Devon. And it's the place where Jack and the surprise are going to go back to time and time again in the coming books as their kind of pirate hidey hole. But that's a little look forward to Shelmerston. We read, not with any great surprise, that lots of Jack's old shipmates want to sign on to serve with Jack as a, in his letter of mark assuming that Jack's going to take her over in that status. Stephen wants Sophie to make sure that Jack says yes, because he's got this pretty well worked out. He thinks it's going to be a great plan. They can get away immediately when it's over because there's probably not going to be imprisonment. But for all, Stephen is a close and intimate friend of Jack's. He knows the limitations of what he can ask for. And Stephen says a very telling thing here. He says, and then again, there's a certain awkwardness, do you see? This is him explaining why he doesn't want to broach it with Jack. The role of deus ex machina is not one that I care for at all. You, Sophie, would do it far better. If he raises this point, this is Stephen meaning that Jack might object because Stephen's done this for him. You will say, Sophie, that there is no obligation in the world. The one supplies the capital, the other the skill. I could not sail a ship across a horse pond nor attack a simple rowing boat. I should certainly never sail with any other captain. Pray tell him. I hope to look in this evening to hear his good word. I must be away. Remember now, you must not say privateer or corsair. You must say letter of mark or private man of war. So he's very carefully manoeuvring this situation so that Jack gets to hear this offer from a quarter from where he might not be exposed to an affront if he accepts the help. And Stephen describes himself as as a potential deus ex machina. What's going on there, Mike? Well, the Latin is literally God from the machine, which would kind of go, what, what, what? And we we have a a movie and (laughs) artificial intelligence sort of doing that. But this is any kind of a plot device using a book or a movie or something where all of a sudden kind of they're in an impossible situation and something unexpected, some power or some event, something saves them from a seemingly hopeless situation. And it's, it's, seems very contrived. It's like, okay, I didn't know how to really set this up or write my way out of it. So we'll just have this contrived plot point um, jump in in the middle of my play or book or novel yeah. or movie to turn the situation around. And we might we might have fun uh, you know, shooting some of those out on social media here or hearing from you what some of your favorites have been. <laughs> okay. Deus ex machina from some of your favorite stories. 
Well, he doesn't like being an informer. He doesn't like being a deus ex machina, but he does like being a spy. <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> so Stephen heads across to see Sir Joseph Blaine. He spent a lot of time with Blaine in this book. He's spent three books previously uh, corresponding only via, you know, coded messages on the back of postage stamps. But now he's getting some proper face time in this book with Sir Joseph Blaine. And as he goes there, he hesitates because he sees Colonel Warren, who is the representative of the horse guards on the committee, coming out of Blaine's door. And this committee is the the top intelligence group. This is the one that Ray and Ledward aspire to. It was described in Chapter 2 as being that curious body so rarefied as to be almost ghostly, which took cognizance at the highest level of the activities of all the British and Allied intelligence services. What uh, what people in the British establishment now would call the Joint Intelligence Committee. Nice. Blaine looks grave and he tells Stephen that he'll soon suspect Lord Liverpool, who, remember, was a senior cabinet member from the previous chapter. He'll soon suspect Lord Liverpool and half the cabinet of high treason. And he's saying that not because he thinks Lord Liverpool is directly in the frame, but because he's saying, I don't know who to suspect now. We've got so high that I look everywhere. There are many contradictions, he says. Perhaps Cerberus himself, referring to the the three-headed dog who guarded the gates of Hades in Greek mythology, perhaps Cerberus himself has run mad. So he's really not sure who to trust. He's really not sure whether the the gatekeepers of the inner sanctum are themselves treacherous. Finding the spy or spies in the ministry and in naval intelligence is proving much more complicated than the simple job of obtaining letters of mark for surprise, which Sir Joseph hands Stephen and lists this long list of countries against whom Jack is now licensed to practice in private, as it were. And Stephen's most grateful. And Mike, I love this gracious little Irish uh, counter-blessing that Stephen offers. He says, God set a flower upon your head, dear Blaine. And that's a finding that we often find ourselves saying to each other in the gun room and on the Facebook groups. What's What's the origin of God set a flower upon your head? I can't find it. I, so I'm, 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 huh. I'm going to you know, reach out to our listeners. I thought as many times as I've seen or heard this, surely it's right there. But I could not. And I, I won't tell you that I spent hours on it. I didn't. But still, nothing jumped up uh, definitively. You know, I, I was thinking back to the story of Jonah. Uh, where God kind of puts a vine over Jonah's head. I, I thought, well, maybe it had a flower on it. I went back to, to Jonah chapter four and it doesn't, you know, but, you know, God shades Jonah's head uh, from the sun to teach him a little bit of a lesson in the next day he has a worm, chew it up and, and knock it down. But we won't go there. But there's kind of a blessing. And in Proverbs too, there's this saying about, you know, kind of a garland of flowers on your head, kind of like your mother's wisdom, like the wisdom of the ages. But now, um, you know, none of those seem to be close enough. So somebody out there with a little Irish, a uh, little Gaelic background can maybe help us. We did find references to it where it's used. Uh, you know, maybe we'll shoot a little Wonder Woman 2017 scene out there. Oh, cool. But, you know, right, right there it is. And so it's you know, clearly everybody knows about it. I just couldn't find out where it came from. So shame on me. Maybe I didn't do my research well enough, but if we've got a listener out there, especially one who could explain it in a beautiful accent, I'd love to hear it. (laughs) So he uh, accepts this benediction from, from Sir Joseph Blaine of the list of letters of Mark. They've still got business to sort out though, which is figuring out whether Sir Joseph Blaine's got advice about routes for finding some kind of appeal or overturn or pardon for Jack. Blaine hears about all these travels, all these journeys that Stephen's made to go and meet Mrs. Fitzherbert and others. 
and tell Stephen it was all a waste of time. It was all a wash. These days, he said, judges can't be bribed or persuaded, except possibly cabinet members like Lord Quinborough, who must, as he says, be responsive to the political wishes of his colleagues. Now, the best that Blaine can do, and it's quite some best, is to take care of that a little. And he's managed to contrive for the this committee to agree that Stephen's the ideal man for this unofficial expedition to Chile and Peru. And he raises the possibility that actually Stephen might not choose to do this with anyone but Jack. So therefore, wouldn't it be great if there was no prison sentence for Jack? So Mike, I, I'd completely forgotten about this little bit of back office manoeuvring by Stephen. We, we're not sure whether this was always a, a shoe in or not. But Stephen's manoeuvrings and Blaine's manoeuvrings in the committee have at least taken care of the possibility that Jack should not go to prison. Right, right. Now, that sounds wonderful, but Blaine does warn Stephen that even though Quinborough can't imprison Jack, or you know, likely can't given this political maneuver that they've done here, he tells Stephen, in O'Brien's word, he will vent out his venom in some other way. So Ooh. he's kind of saying, it, you know, Jack is not out of the woods yet, even though he, he won't go to prison. And and Blaine points out that the other defendants were allowed to, you know, go home and walk out on bail, but Aubrey alone was kept in prison. And Blaine is is saying, you know, there just must be some long-standing hidden malice against Jack in this. Yeah. It's not just the ministry going after his father and the radicals. Somebody has it in for Jack. And we're kind of going, wait, wait. You know, I think we've been we've thought about this. We've seen some funny other connections here, but Blaine is once again, underscoring this for us. Yeah. So where we're headed then is Jack having to bear the sentence of the pillory. Interestingly, in the the real timeline of Thomas Cochrane, he was sentenced to a fine on the pillory. He actually managed, I can't remember the exact details, he managed to get uh, reprieve from the sentence of pillory. I think they managed to contrive some temporary one-day pardon for anybody who was sentenced to the pillory upon a guilt hall trial. This this category of pardons really oh. then applied only to Thomas Cochrane. So Cochrane received the sentence but didn't undergo it. But Stephen gets the word that the sentence is confirmed. Jack has to pay a £2,500 fine and stand for an hour in the pillory across from the Royal Exchange. And we as readers don't know about it. And thankfully, Blaine explains this for Stephen, who's never heard of it either. Blaine says, have you ever seen a man pilloried in England? He says, it can be very bloody. Uh, he explains how people are often killed, maimed. Somebody had had his eyes put out as being pelted with rocks. This is an opportunity by somebody being basically locked in, the, in this pillory stall in public for people to come along either for fun or out of vengeance to just do whatever they want. Given the evident personal malignance here, therefore, Blaine suggests that Stephen should ask Pratt, the thief taker, to hire a guard of bruisers. So although the pillory is public, if you can hire some of your own muscle, that might help to protect your guy from the worst of the pillory. And Stephen's off right away. He says, I'm going to hire some help with, with, uh, with Pratt's good officers to protect Jack while he's in the pillory. And that sounds like a good move, right, Mike? It does. It you know. It sounds like a great idea. You know, if he can put sort of some people around to protect Jack, you know, we'd like that. Now that you know, you're going to be people throwing rocks from all over. So, you know, it, it, there's only so much they can do. But at least it's something here. Um, Stephen that has this interesting thing. He, he asks Blaine what he thinks of Lady Hertford, and Blaine doesn't know quite how to take the question. But you know, Stephen explains that he's going to try to go see her so that 
Jack's name is not struck off the Navy list. He says that, you know, uh, Ray knows her. Ray could introduce him. He's going to get a really nice present for her, get Ray to set up the introduction. And Blaine says, look, Jack's name must be struck off the Navy list. There's no question that D.R. Seaving can kind of do all he wants to, but it's not going to change that reality. But Blaine brings up an interesting thing. He says, the real question is restoration, Hmm. getting Jack's name and seniority, perhaps, added back to the Navy list again later. So there's a nice thing here. It's like, Stephen, don't waste all your effort and energy on this because that door is probably not going to open. But if we play our cards right, perhaps sometime in the future, we can reopen that door with no loss of seniority. He said that, you know, sometimes in certain cases that's been done. But Stephen hears him, but being Stephen and loving Jack, he says, you know, that's okay. I'm going to go stop by to see Ray. I'm going to pick up that present. And Blaine warns him, he says, between an odious woman and a clever, showy coxcomb like Ray, you're likely to lose both your present and your time. Ah, Wise words from uh, from, from Blaine there. Um, of course, Whenever Stephen wants to go and see Ray to have a proper talk and get some get some serious conversation, Ray's not there. And this happens right. again. Ray's not at home, but Mrs. Ray, Fanny Ray, Admiral Hart's daughter, is. And you might all remember that her lover, Charles Babington, was asking Stephen's advice and Jack's advice about whether they should elope together. So Fanny's there. She welcomes Stephen. She's completely dismayed about Jack. She's from a service family. The pillory, she says, is unthinkable for a naval officer. She talks about how much Charles Babington fairly worships Jack and offers to help Jack and Sophie in any way that she can, although that extends mainly in her idea to looking after children or even cats. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's lovely to have that little moment of recognition that the service generally is feeling like this is an injustice towards Jack. And we get another really interesting revelation, or at least confirmation. She says that she doesn't care if Jack did rig the market everyone does she says i know mr ray made a great deal at the same time and mike this is turns out just as we suspected a couple of chapters ago ray's sudden ability that occurred to her to pay off his gambling debts wasn't a coincidence ray had access to some of the same information or was privy to some of the same movements in the stock market and we might have to wonder what that all means for what we all think of ray yeah well, yeah. I think we, we all find out pretty clearly what we, the readers, are meant to think of Ray because the drunken man himself comes home, carried over the threshold by the chairman, and the text says, as they propelled him across the hall, he turned his blotched face towards Stephen and said, a beaten wife and a cuckold swain have jointly cursed the marriage chain. I'm like, this, this is a pretty grim-sounding couplet. Is, is this a straight quote or is this something else going on here with Patrick O'Brien? You know, I was so tempted, Ian, with this coming out of the mouth of Andrew Ray to think it's just this ugly, drunken Ray. And, you know, it's probably a line from a poem, but I almost walked past it. But then I thought, wait a minute. First of all, I don't know what a swain is, so I've got to go look that up. (laughs) And it turns out that's a a young lover or suitor or a country youth. So maybe somebody who's, you know, not so bright. But um, so it does have this sort of thing. But then I... I trace it down, and this comes from a poem called Epitaph. It's by Lady Mary Wortley Montague, yeah. um, who I I did not know, to be honest. Uh, Me either. <laughs> yeah, and, and she has this incredibly fascinating history. 
And it, once I started to dig into this, I thought, you know, it's absolutely clear O'Brien did not throw this line in here for nothing. As, as our old friend Mitch would say, not for nothing did he write yeah. that. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. It turns out that Lady Mary Wortley Montague was a kind of a muse for Alexander Pope. And later they kind of got on bad terms. And Pope had written uh, a poem called Epitaphs on Two Lovers Struck Dead by Lightning. And it's this kind of grand, as you kind of imagine, uh, an Alexander Pope. It's virtuous and romantic and in the grand style um, where there are these lovers and they're so virtuous that this lightning sent from heaven you know, strikes them down and is a sign of their mutual love and a seal of heavenly approval. And and she's kind of, I think, one kind of poking fun at Pope, but she's also kind of saying, you know, look, let's look at the world here, especially the world from a woman's perspective. <laughs> and so in her version, it's this couple and it's not this epic kind of poem set in the romantic universe. It's just this young couple and they have plain old names and they're about to be married in a week. They're in the midst of a storm and they kind of dive under a hay pile. And she kind of alludes to the fact that, you know, while they were under the hay pile, they thought they just might fool around a little bit and that the lightning is now sent out because to get them both, presumably because they're fooling around and they're not married yet. But she says in this line, here that, you know, had they lived another year, she would have cheated on him hmm. and he would have beaten her. And that's that line. A beaten wife and a cuckold swain had jointly cursed the marriage chain. Now they are happy in their doom, runs the next line, for P, meaning Pope, has wrote, and that is the way it is, has wrote upon their tomb. So it's like, oh, great. So, you know, here's this couple that Pope is really writing the epitaph for. And this is this is the world. It's it's the everyday world here. It's not Pope's grand thing. And by the way, you know, here's men and women in kind of their their plainness. Well, yeah. this, you know, I, I have to reach out. Patrick Voss is, is a blog called The Reverberate Hills or the apotheosis of the narwhal. So that's a name that Patrick O'Brien, I think, would be proud of. And he wrote this analysis of these poems here. Um, And he also pointed out that Lady Mary has this incredible history and says, go go look her up, which I did. Um, Turns out she is the person who introduced Britain and all of Western Europe uh, in, in April 1721 to the inoculation against smallpox. She had discovered it while living in Turkey. Her husband worked at the British Embassy there. And uh, fascinatingly, even though she found out about it and had her own daughter inoculated in England and then wanted you know work tirelessly to spread the word so that people wouldn't die from this stuff, People didn't believe her. And, you know, it it, had come from this foreign land. It was being introduced by a woman. It was irreligious. You know, and I'm I'm glad now that we've come so far in our feelings about vaccines and women. We would certainly, (laughs) maybe we would. (laughs) Anyways, so what I would say to our dear listeners is here is an early feminist, not a perfect feminist, but an early feminist with some excellent letters, some excellent poems and a great personal history well worth looking into Lady Montague. Hmm. Fascinating. One of those multi-layered references. Yes. Well, um, I don't know, Mike. At this point, maybe some of us want to go and check our uh, our anthologies of Alexander Pope's poetry. Some of us want to go and check our uh, histories of smallpox vaccination. Some of us 
just want to go and fool around in a hay bale. Any, anyhow, <laughs> it's time for a short break. And when we come back, we're going to hear what's really going to happen to Jack. Yes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So welcome back. We're halfway through chapter nine and we are back at the Marshall Sea, the naval prison, where people are furious at the thought of a naval officer in the pillory. And they had left the skittle grounds below Jack's room empty out of deference to his feelings. And nothing says respect like a, a sailor foregoing a game of skittles. <laughs> right. And and more seriously, more solemnly, we get Killick, who's kind of the bellwether for the mood of the crews and the companies around Jack. Killick sitting on the bottom step looking stunned as though his world had been destroyed. And then Mike, as Stephen goes up the stairs, he hears Jack playing what O'Brien calls a very severe fugue with uncommon strength and austerity. And I'm, I'm going to stretch a point here. I'm going to imagine that if it's a fugue, it might be J.S. Bach. And if it's a fugue for solo violin, it might well be the fugue from the first sonata in G minor. At the end of this fugue, Stephen knocks and opens the door and Jack turns and glares at him. And very unusually, we get a notice of this cold, fierce stare from Jack towards Stephen. Except, of course, Mike, it wasn't really directed at Stephen. I think Jack thought it was someone else. It turns out he's happy to see Stephen. Yeah, and it's funny. I, I don't know and I, I have no idea who Jack thought it might be. But we see Jack, you know, he says he's happy to see Stephen and then he pulls himself together and O'Brien tells him with some constraint and formality. Um, Jack says that Sophie, in, in O'Brien's words, told me about surprise. I'm exceedingly grateful for your offer, and I should, of course, be delighted to command her as a private ship of war. But, Stephen, I do not quite understand. Can you indeed fit her out as well as buying her? For once I have paid my fine, and here I just love this, you know, Jack is like, he kind of, I, and I think it says Stephen made the right call to send Sophie in. You know, Jack's yeah. having a little bit of a hard time accepting this. And then he's worried that between his fine and his losses from the market, so not mm -hmm. only did Jack not make a lot of money, he actually lost money on the market. He's got this huge fine to pay. You know, he's kind of thinking, and I've also got these lawsuits against me. You know, I, I've got nothing to offer here. Yeah. But Stephen, you know, just cuts all that off. He explains how he's inherited from his godfather. And he, you O'Brien know, writes, so very much more that we need not look attentively at each penny before we spend it. We shall carry on our private war in style. And I, th I think Stephen's trying to lighten the mood here. He's trying to say, Jack, you know, not only we're we going to be on our own man of war, we're going to be able to do whatever we want. We're going to be living the good life here. And Stephen sees that despite this, despite surprise, that there's some wound in Jack here. And so you see Stephen sort of going through all these motions to try to heal that wound or touch that or put some solve on it here. And, and he tells Jack, you know, I'm, I'm going to be carrying on some of my, he doesn't put it in quite this language, but he says, I'm going to be carrying on my official intelligence duties. So as we harry the enemy's commerce, you know, we're also going to be fighting the war here. And, and all he gets 
back from Jack is just this polite kind of inclination of his head. Mike, we're getting to the big moment. We're a few paragraphs away and Stephen and Jack have got to get their heads around what's about to happen. And Stephen's already armed himself and prepared himself to help his friend through this really grim moment. He points out that the spiteful pillory, as he calls it, while unpleasant like a toothache, is of no essential importance to an innocent man. And it's very nice of him to hark back to Jack's own determination that innocence will have its own reward. He gives Jack, or he offers Jack at least, a draft to take away the unpleasantness. He says it will make it pass like a dream. And I think we're allowed to believe that this is going to be the tincture of laudanum, Stephen's old friend and crutch. Stephen says he's used it to himself with great effect. And Jack politely thanks him and sets the bottle on the mantle, showing Stephen pretty clearly that it's not going to be used. Mm. The underlying pain was quite untouched, it says. For to Jack Aubrey, the fact of no longer belonging to the Navy counted more than a thousand pillories, the loss of fortune, loss of rank, and loss of future. It was, in a way, a loss of being. And to those who knew him well, it gave his eyes, his whole face, the strangest look. And it carries on. He still had this detached grey expression on the following Wednesday. As he stood in a bare dirty room on the south side of Cornhill, waiting to be let out to the pillory. Wow. And Mike, we, we'll talk as we go through this about the the importance of this this moment. But I just want to say here, I, I, I love how close he's got us to Jack Aubrey at this moment. And we, we've talked a lot about how Stephen Maturin seems to be kind of Patrick O'Brien's avatar. He's the pair of eyes through which Patrick O'Brien views the world and talks about his opinions. But I think that Patrick O'Brien has grown to love Jack Aubrey very deeply. And he's really carefully taking us towards this point where Stephen's friend and Patrick O'Brien's great friend, the subject of so much admiration, is brought to this really, really painful moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. I mean, this is an incredible moment for Jack. And I I, and I know a really tough moment for Stephen, but I really feel like, as you say, O'Brien has always painted Jack well, but I think in this painting, if you will, in this scene, you know, Jack is looming large up here. And so, you know, we've got Jack with this look on his face. And, and then we turn our attention to the sheriff's men and constables who are kind of keeping Jack um, inside in this bare, dirty room. And they're sort of saying they're, they're worried. They wish the sentence had been carried out right away right after that and not let the news reach, as they say, every port in the kingdom. Uh, They're noting how the alleys are all blocking up. Uh, They wish they had had additional soldiers sent to manage this crowd. And they're wondering if they're even going to get out of this alive. They're looking out here and they're saying even the men from the press gang with their cutlasses and their bludgeons are out there in this crowd and that the crowd has now started blocking off other entrances. So they're kind of, there's this huge crowd of people and they're putting carts in the way of alleys and things so that nobody else can get in. And, and hmm. you know, again, these constables, these sheriff's men, they're saying, you know, we got to get this over with quickly before we're beaten or strangled. And Mike, we're, we're getting the countdown minute by minute here. It's 10 past 12. They are running late. There are people in the crowd shouting, eight bells there, turn the glass and strike the bell. What? 
10 minutes after 12, it's well after eight bells, but never mind. <laughs> there are also not sailors, but dock jobbers, city guys with bags of stones who shout, bring him out and let's have a look at him. Bonden turns to them and tells them to go be somewhere else. He says, this here is only for seamen. And looking around and taking inventory of all the sailors who are there, they leave. And an old, old crewmate of Jack's, Awkward Davis, who's a bit of a berserker in battle. We see he's got a line of spittle in his mouth. He's got his four even more ugly brothers and a black bosun's mate. And he turns to Ray's gang of genuine bruisers who had hung around and not left, tells them to bugger off. And they do indeed bugger off. After they have left... Awkward Davis turns to Stephen's bruisers, the guy that Stephen has hired with the help of Pratt, and says, no offence, mate, but you bugger off too. Right. And with a nod from Stephen, they're gone. Yeah, and, and I just say, you know, O'Brien just taking a sort of minute by minute. At 12.15, Jack comes out, and he's blinded by the glare. And, and the sheriff's men put him in the pillory, and they're kind of locking in each part of him standing up here. So his face is going to be locked in towards this crowd here. Uh, O'Brien writes, the man was slowly fumbling with the bolt, the hinge, and staple, and as Jack stood there with his hands in the lower half rounds, his sight cleared. He saw that the broad street was filled with silent, attentive men, some in long togs, some in shore-going rig, some in plain frocks, but all perfectly recognizable as seamen, and officers by the dozen, by the score, midshipmen and officers, Babington was there immediately in front of the pillory, facing him with his hat off and pullings. Stephen, of course, Mowat, Dundas. He, he nodded to them with almost no change in his iron expression, and his eyes moved on. Parker, Rowan, Williamson, Hervey, and, and men from long, long ago, men he could scarcely name, lieutenants and commanders, putting their promotion at risk. Midshipmen and master's mates, their commissions, warrant officers, their advancement. Everybody putting all these things at risk to be there with Jack. And then we get right back up close with Jack. This often happens at moments of, of heightened action that we get first person with Jack in his immediate situation. The sheriff's man murmurs, the head a trifle forward, if you please, sir. And the upper half of the wooden frame came down, imprisoning his defenceless face. He heard the click of the bolt. And then, in the dead silence, a strong voice cry, Off hats! With one movement, hundreds of broad-brimmed tarpaulin-covered hats flew off, and the cheering began. The fierce, full-throated cheering he had so often heard in battle. End of chapter 9. Oh, Mike, Woo. Mike, Mike, so much going on here. This is every time, every time this catches me a little bit by surprise. Every time I've got tears in my eyes for Jack. I've got tears in my eyes for his friends who've shown up and been there and stood alongside and given him, oh, some, something very, very special. Yeah, it's, it, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. I mean, you know, for me, it's right up there with Dill in HMS Surprise. That was a very sad cry. This is a very happy one, both of them with incredible intensity. Um, and, you know, I, I kept wondering to myself, I mean, I was I was dictating some of the notes for this and crying as I'm dictating the notes. And I'm thinking, yeah. what, you know, what's going on here? And 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 there was a piece of it for me. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I love Jack. We love Jack. But, but it's more than that. And I... I 
made me think back to the mirror of Erised in, uh, in Harry Potter. That Ooh, very good. Big desire spelled backwards. You know, that magical mirror that Dumbledore told Harry, you know, shows us the deepest, most desperate desires of our hearts. And, and part of that reaction for me is this thing of, you know, it's this reaction to be acknowledged by our peers. You know, here's, here's Jack who had all the faith in the world in his peers, this English jury, and they completely let him down. In the legal system and lawyers, let him down. Judges, let him down. The Navy, you know, kind of the the admiralty, it just let him down so often professionally here. Uh, But then here are his actual peers, you know, from the lowest to the highest, for all across the Navy, all there at great professional and some personal risk to affirm Jack, to affirm the good things about the Navy, the Navy uh-huh. as Jack really kind of sees it and believes it. You know, the Navy that Jack thought English justice would be like, but it was not. Um, so I, I just, you know, as, as a guy with imposter syndrome, this scene absolutely <laughs> resonates with me <laughs> to have, you know, have these people coming out for Jack to think in the mirror of Arison, you know, wouldn't I love that too? There's people coming out saying, no, no, I'm here. You know, I love who you are. I love what you do. And, uh, I'm here with you. It's so awesome. Oh, it's brilliant. I remember, uh, Steve Morris with the cinephiles called this, uh, when we were talking to him about this, called this the scene that generates an ugly cry chapter. Right. And that's, that's so right. It is an ugly cry, but it's a happy cry. Um, not only because Jack is getting, you know, the, the, the solidarity of his peer group, but he's getting this really unvarnished admiration. We've had a couple of little hints of it in earlier parts of the canon. I remember when he got his promotion and when he was doing well with prizes in Mahon, we got this real signal that he was buoyed up by the candid, you know, at a boy of, of his peers, even when he's in bad odor with authority. Now Jack's moved on a lot. I, I have a feeling that, like I said before, that Jack's moved on so much that Patrick O'Brien loves him even more than he perhaps intended to. And he gives us this chance to stand beside somebody that he admires and we admire that's Jack feel some of what he felt as he got this great wave of admiration and support from people who just wanted to express, you know, how they felt. It won't happen very often in anyone's life. I, 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 I dare not hope that it'll happen very often in my life, but I can think of moments that are, that are pretty close for me. And Mike, there's another, I, I want to come back to the mention of cricket that was a few chapters ago in this book. This story of the wave of emotion from supporters and friends and admirers reminds me of the story of the final cast innings of a guy called Don Bradman. So go, bear with me for a second here. Um, the scene was Saturday, August 14th, 1948. It was 10 to 6 in the evening at the Oval Cricket Ground in London, one of the famous great cricket grounds. And it was the final test match between England and Australia. And it was to be the final test appearance of Don Bradman. Don Bradman of Australia, widely acknowledged as the greatest batsman of all time, well, well on into his career, loved and respected not only, obviously, by Australian cricket fans, but by the English fans as well. And the, a journalist writing at the time wrote, what a reception the crowd gave him all the way to the wicket. They cheered that human frame to whose near infallible secrets no one has yet been able to find an adequate answer. The reception he got when he went out to bat at the Oval from the English team, from the public, because the ground was packed, and from the English players all around him, they all took their caps off and gave him three cheers, you can't tell me, says the journalist, that that doesn't affect somebody. 
Now, the story goes on. His final valedictory innings, this this person who was about to close his career on an average of nearly 100 runs per innings, which is pretty phenomenal, in two balls his innings were over. Don's career was done. He was out second ball. The complete silence around the ground as the wicket fell also reached into the Australian dressing room where they noticed it. And there was a wonderful piece of off-the-cuff radio commentary by legendary cricket commentator John Arlott. This gets quoted and talked about a lot, and I love it, and I think it really reminds me of the situation we have here with Jack. John Arlott said, I wonder if you see the ball very clearly in your last test in England on a ground where you've played the biggest cricket of your life and where the opposing side has just stood round you and given you three cheers and the crowd has clapped you all the way to the wicket. I wonder if you see the ball at all. So I, I'm very happy for Aussie batsman legend Don Bradman to be in the same place in my heart at this moment as fictitious Captain Jack Aubrey. Yeah, to, to wrap up the story for a minute, Bradman said later it was a massive exaggeration that tears had blurred his vision. Hollies, the English bowler who bowled him out, had no time at all for the sentimentality. Hollies reportedly said, best fucking bowler I've bowled all season and they're clapping him. <laughs> But Mike, just just to go back to this, I think you know, I, I love the point that you made about Jack and the Navy. Uh, Jack realizes, or maybe we realize, on behalf of Jack, you you can love people but be massively disillusioned with the institution that they belong to. And Jack loves and is loved by his fellow sailors. He's going to go through a moment here of being profoundly disillusioned with the Navy and with the, the the British establishment. It's a big moment in your life when you realize that the people in the institution are different. And how you handle that, I think, as a person in your career, has a big impact on the choices that you make. Now, Jack Jack could, to use a cricketing metaphor, take his bat and ball home. He could say, I'm done with the Navy. I'm done with you all. I'm done with the life of the sea. I'm going to go and polish my telescope. I'm going to go and find another complacent girl to cavort with in a ball in Halifax. I'm going to go and take a jump off a bridge. And all of those choices are open to Jack. And as 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 humans with some empathy for Jack, we wonder how he's going to proceed. Yeah, and, and there's a part of me that says, you know, thank goodness Jack doesn't have to deal with any of this anymore. You know, isn't this going to be great? The possibility of a new chapter of the Jack Aubrey, Stephen Matron story is a letter of Mark. You know, the surprise is back from the breaker's yard. We've got intelligence missions on the horizon. We can stop at the Galapagos anytime we want to. Jack's going to be untethered by Admiral's orders and, and missions. So, you know, what was the wording of that order? Can I chase that prize or not? He'd go straight for the prizes. He'll get that lucky Jack trophy all shiny again. And, and you know, there's a part of me going, you know, it's all good news from here, right? This could be Patrick O'Brien in the Marvel Universe. The good guys always win from now on. But you know, wait. Yeah. yeah. We I still- kind of tell myself, we still have some loose ends here. <laughs> and like you say, Jack could go in a lot of different directions. And it's not like, you know, as much as I love all these people who all have their differences coming together. And God, couldn't we use that now in this world? Yeah in the midst of our pandemics and politics and social media, you know, something like that. But we also have, uh, you know, Jack's lost all this money in this get rich quick scheme. He's got this 2,500 pound fine. He's still got all his other court cases pending. Diana's still gone. Steven's still hurting though. He's been distracted helping Jack. That's about, you know, that part of that helping, I, I, I hope is a soon 
uh, going to go away. Ray and Ledford are still like having their complete way in naval intelligence, and Blaine appears to be no closer to catching them, even though we know about them. Um, there's still plenty more to work out and get through. I, I, as, yeah, as much as I'd like it, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> right. So, and Mike, therefore, we we still have another chapter in the book. What what do you say next week if our hearts can stand it? to just one more chapter of Patrick O'Brien. Well, Ian, I would love that of all things. close and intimate friend of Jack's. He knows the limitations of what he can ask for. Sorry, he knows the limitation of what he can ask for. <laughs> he knows the <laughs> He knows the limitations of what he can ask for. There's our outtake.